This is Terms of Reference podcast number 159. I'm really excited to think about electricity in the future, and I think that's a, a really neat topic because people aren't expecting that it's going to look any different than it does in the U.S. and in Europe. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Lettick. The availability of continuous power, that is, the assumption that you can plug in an appliance or flip a switch without wondering whether or not electrons will flow, is a hallmark of civilization. So much so that a great deal of what holds up our global economy would not be possible without the assurance that we can keep the lights on, or, or at least turn them on, 24-7. So what do you do when the power goes out? Do you call your local utility? Do you investigate your community breaker box? Or perhaps, maybe like me, you view it as an unexpected respite from the daily grind and simply relax. In some parts of the world, utilities have moved to a system that utilizes smart meters. These devices not only allow the utility to control access to power, but they can also alert the utility when the power stops. But smart meters are expensive and may not be a silver bullet, especially in emerging economies. My guests today for the 159th Terms of Reference podcast, Noah Klugman and Jay Tanasia, recognize the limitations of smart meters and have created a different approach to understanding when the power goes out. It's called GridWatch. GridWatch harnesses data captured by the sensors in mobile phones to recognize when a power failure has occurred and notifies the local utility. I think just talking about how GridWatch was born and what they've achieved over the past few years would be enough for today's show. But amazingly, I think you're going to find real value in our conversation about the future of electrification and how a small startup with a high-value product is now currently iterating that product to serve the needs that have been identified by their users as even more important than getting the power back on. I spoke with Noah in Ann Arbor and Jay in Boston. But before we get started, here's a word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Jay and Noah. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks for having me, Steve. This is Noah. All right. And Jay? Thank you very much for having us, Stephen. We appreciate I, it. I want to make sure that everybody knows your both of your voices here so uh, we, we can distinguish between who's and who. You guys are both sitting in, in different places. Where do we find you here at the sort of the beginning of June in 2017? Yeah, so I am in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am in Boston, Massachusetts, about to start a whirlwind trip across the U.S. Sounds fantastic. We're looking forward to our summer vacation as well. Um, as most of the listeners know, we you know we live in Bangkok, and we'll be coming back to the the Estados Unidos for a good chunk of time here, and uh, we're very much looking forward to that. Nothing like summertime in the mountains, right? You both are part of a project called GridWatch, and I'm gonna, I'm very interested to sort of actually break apart how the project came not only came about but who's involved because when you when you sort of do some research online there's an awful lot of people involved why don't we start there i i'm not sure who would be best positioned i think maybe it's noah but i could be wrong what was the genesis of of gridwatch you know why don't you tell us a little bit about what gridwatch does and where that idea came from yeah absolutely um it is grown really quick which is cool and um probably should be better documented gridwatch Firstly, is a research project. So maybe it makes sense to introduce it kind of by stating the hypothesis. So I have it written down in front of me. So bear with the dry language for just a moment. So our hypothesis is that 
greater visibility into the distribution level of a power grid can be provided in an inexpensive, crowdsourced manner by using unmodified, everyday-use smartphones to sense power outages and power restorations, and by using cloud services to corroborate reports between phones. And I'll break it down into some bite-sized chunks as we kind of dive into a little bit more what the technology actually does. But the the high-level takeaway that I hope to get across is that we believe that smartphones um, and the same smartphones that people carry around with them, you know, every day can detect power outages and power restorations. And this is pretty cool because unlike smart meters, which are expensive and would represent kind of a new significant infrastructure investment, smartphones are already widely deployed around the world. So you see very often, you know, a large amount of investment in newly electrified regions um, in providing access. It's, you know, there's been billions of dollars spent um, and a lot of aid efforts spent in running lines to, you know, rural regions and, um, you know, making sure that if, if a household cares to connect to um, grid electricity, they are able to do so because there's a line that is nearby. This is great. But what we're finding as we look at how many people actually choose to take advantage of, of the access that they have now we're finding a very low rate of adoption. You know, access is now solved, even though there's a line nearby that they could choose to tap into and, and take electricity from, they're oftentimes deciding to not subscribe. Um, and we hypothesized that this is because the reliability of the electricity you know, on these lines is, is pretty poor. And, you know, this poor quality electricity, this unreliable electricity is actually really a large problem, um, you know, almost so much so that access to unreliable electricity is really not access at all. Ah, let me pause you for a second, because I'm always fascinated with the images that come up in my mind when, when we have these conversations. And, you know, I first cut my teeth in the social sector working in working in Iraq and the Middle East. And I can remember, you know, taking pictures and sending them home, you know, of, of, of Kurdistan, where you've got a gajillion wires coming into one pole and then you have 20 or 30 other little wires that people have, have tapped into to, to, you know, to get to their generators or even just a plug in their phone or, th or this or that you know I, I look out my window here in Bangkok right now and, and there's again you know on every on every pole on every street there's just thousands and thousands of wires luckily here in Bangkok we have very very reliable power but if we think of sub-Saharan Africa if we think of other parts of the world where power is not reliable it's a massive massive problem I believe Noah, this you know this came during your your undergraduate days. I'm I'm just wondering, did you wake up one day and you're like power grids? That's what I want to be doing, or like where did this come from? You know, I think it's a just broadly an interesting problem, a discrepancy between you know you see this advanced metering infrastructure that's out there in the world, you know these smart meters and these billions of dollars and this hugely complex system. And when I was an undergrad, I used to really enjoy just kind of building simple little circuits and playing around and hacking. And I think a lot of undergrads have this, you know, in, in computer science and electrical engineering, have this experience where they build something. And I built this little smart meter, basically, in my bedroom. And it worked. And you see this $20 piece of hardware that you've put together, you know, on your table, and then you look at how much this actually costs at scale and to be done correctly in the real world. And the kind of the potential difference between those two things was really interesting. So, 
you know, digging into it a little bit deeper, I, you know, started to learn more about kind of the costs of actually building reliable hardware and deploying things and going to each household and tying, you know, tightly integrating everything into a system as large as a national utility and, and begin to understand how those costs might kind of balloon and explode. So it was just kind of a nagging thing to me about whether there is a way to do this with hardware that kind of already existed, you know, that didn't require kind of this massive mobilization. It made intuitive sense to me that in order to provide reliable power, you need to know what's happening. Power sure, you, you need to know if the power's on or off, right? I mean, that... Yeah, even in Ann Arbor, um, when our power goes out, you know, and there's smart meters, the utility company still calls and still says, you know, is your power out? And then still calls for days later. Um, and that seemed like something that, you know, it's not a huge problem for me here in, in Ann Arbor because the power does come back on, but it's pretty easy to imagine if a utility was less organized or had less resources, you know, that type of manual reporting would lead to sustained power outages when, you know, really they would be pretty easy to fix and address and would also just lead to kind of hugely inefficient, you know, maintenance and operation scheduling. Mm. What led you to think of, of mobile phones? I mean, was this just we're on we're in the we're in the age of we're in the age of smartphones, we're in the age of mobile technology, they're they're everywhere and so you, you instantly thought of that or was that an so, iterative process through some of your classes or so the root of the idea actually came from my advisor, who's uh, Professor Prabal Dutta, and a conversation he was having with some folks at Berkeley, and just kind of spitballing whether something like Gridwatch would even be possible. So the initial thread of mobile phones, I have to say, I jumped on that train. And if you, you know, dive into how that actual system's working, it's it's not there's been a lot of kind of iterative learning and improvements and, you know, it's not immediately intuitive how a mobile phone that people are carrying around might actually accurately detect power. Out no, I, power. I'm hoping that you will tell us because I know that the mobile <laughs> phone, I know my mobile phone doesn't charge when the power goes out. Right. But what, yeah. when I was reading, you know, some of the papers in background for this conversation, you said that there's, there's other things that the phone can detect. And I mean, what is it? Humidity in the air? Is it, you know, is it uh, the lights go out? Is it, you know, are you using the camera? Like what other sensor data do you pick up in order to determine that, that the power, you know, that, that there's an outage? Yeah. So you kind of hit our, first sort of key breakthrough there, which is uh, we realized that when a phone is plugged in and charging, it is simultaneously connected to the power grid and the cellular network. So when an outage occurs, a plugged in phone will stop charging, um, which could be detected by the GridWatch app. And then the GridWatch app can then use the cellular network, which is often battery backed up and functional during a power outage to send a report about this power outage to a central server in near real time. But obviously, phones that are plugged in stop charging for lots of other reasons than power outages. So we could look at other sensors on the phone to confirm that it actually was an actual power outage that caused the phone to stop charging. Um, so, for example, when someone unplugs their phone during normal use, uh, they often move their phone. So all Android phones have a sensor called an accelerometer that's built into them that can detect motion. So we can say, hey, after this phone stopped charging, it moved. Perhaps this isn't actually an outage. You know, perhaps someone unplugged their phone and moved it. And we could look at some other sensors, um, like you mentioned, like the, the microphone, actually. We were able to detect a 
noise at um, 50 hertz or 60 hertz, which is the fundamental frequency of grid power. And this noise on the microphone, we could basically hear the hum of power nearby. All, all I can think of right now, Noah, is... Now I'm forgetting the actress's name. Uh, <laughs> who used to listen to the stars for Alien Life. Like, you guys are literally listening to the grid for, you know, is, is it turned on, is it not? Like, I can just see a bunch of people sitting around with, with stethoscopes to the wall listening, <laughs> listening to the power. But isn't that cool? That's well, fan- I, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> are you kidding me? It's fantastic. That's, that's brilliant. Wouldn't it be so cool if all of our pockets could just do that for us? So, so that we were pretty excited about that. You could also think, of, you know, like I don't think it's necessary to go through all of our little tricks. Um, no, no, they're but, all written out online. But another thing that we could look at is like Wi-Fi, nearby Wi-Fi sensor or SSIDs. So, if you know your phone stops charging and then you can't hear nearby power, and your phone didn't move, and there's no Wi-Fi nearby. You could kind of start to build, you know, some confidence that this wasn't just normal use. This was actually an outage. One of the uh. things that I, that I really love about what you're doing here is on this show, we've had a ton of conversations about big data. We've had a ton of conversations about sensor data and these kinds of things. But I think, you know, in my memory, this is really the first time anybody's really made tangible in a, in a very real way. As soon as you started explaining, you know, okay, SSIDs from Wi-Fi, uh, you know, the hum of, of electricity, the, you know, these little, the accelerometer, these are all just so obvious answers when you, when you say them, but they're not obvious until you say them, right? We're surrounded by those inputs every time, right? At, 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 at all days, every day. I just find that fascinating. And that's great. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just sort of, I'm gushing. I'm gushing at the fact that, that you've just made tangible an extraordinarily, what, what seems like an extraordinarily simple thing, but it's taken us all of this time to get to the point where now we can use it for practical application like this. You know, that kind of cuteness of the project has been really important when we've gone and talked to utilities and we've talked to, you know, different decision makers kind of in this space in a number of different countries. There seems to be kind of this intuitive, you know, like, ah, this should work. This is, you know, this is scalable at the cost of an app download. You know, like this is there's no real reason that this shouldn't be tried response from a lot of people who are pretty senior up. And, you know, it's, it's been fun to watch people's kind of eyes light up with that. Maybe fast so, forward for me a little bit. I'm, I'm interested in getting Jay in the conversation here and I may be jumping over a couple milestones, but we can circle back. So, Jay, I know you just came back from Nairobi. You were telling me before the show that you've been overseas for three years. Congratulations. I recommend everybody go overseas. We've been overseas for 12 years. Where do you come into the picture? You were you were in Kenya. I guess that's probably the fast forward from the inception of Ridwatch to actually taking it out into the field somewhere and seeing if this thing works. Absolutely. The genesis of this story from from my side actually starts where a lot of great stories starts, which was Berkeley as well. So um, I had done my graduate work <laughs> at Berkeley, and and uh, Prabal, who is Noah's advi- research advisor. Um, was my mentor. He was in my graduate group, so he was a student alongside me, but I've known him for many, many years. And as soon as Gridwatch came along, he said, hey, this is really cool work. You should check this out. At the same time, I was finishing up my graduate work and about to go off into the scary world of of a job. And I um, found this great opportunity to go help start a research group working on energy and electricity at IBM Research. So large multinational company, but not just any IBM Research Lab, this new lab in Nairobi, Kenya, the first IT commercial research lab anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm, So very, very neat opportunity. I was the eighth employee at this lab uh, and got to see uh, and build this research group looking at energy electricity. And Gridwatch seemed like a perfect fit. But 
there is there's a process. So um, you know the the evolution of Gridwatch went from being something that Noah and Prabal dreamed up in a lab and tested out with power strips in a, in a house and uh, a, you know their own rat's nest of wires that looked like a living room gone wrong. And then we started to understand what would it take to bring this to to this context. This I was working very closely with Kenya Power, the, the main distribution utility in, in Kenya, and trying to understand, well, how would how would this uh, this system apply here? Are there enough people with phones? How would it connect to the utility system. It's not just about measurement. It actually has to be about some kind of actuation. You need to change the system in order to better respond to outages or, or better predict outages or uh, any number of different ways you can change that system. But if you're just measuring, you're not getting the whole picture. How do we make that leap from the rat's nest in the living room of, you know, as, as Noah said, and, and Noah, I don't want to demean this project at all by saying, you know, it's cute, but, you know, the, the cute little research project to something that, you know, a re- an IBM research lab, you know, sort of, I'm going to assume, gold standard kind of lab, you know, now in sub-Saharan Africa. What's the arc to get from point A to point B? I mean, and, and sort of what's the time on that? Is this years? Is this weeks? Is this months? Is it, do you have to go from, you know, sort of your, your Raspberry Pi circuit board to something that's, you know, really, you know, super industrial standard, you know, that, that, that people can plug in? I guess in this case, it's an app, right? So, Take me through that process. I'm not sure who's the better one to answer that that question, if it's Noah or Jay. A really good question. Um, and it's been kind of my most interesting part of my graduate work so far for me, just personally. And I think you could address that in lots of different dimensions. So I've had the chance to try to make that leap with the project um, in Kenya, with Kenya Power, and with you know the connections that Jay was able to put together over there. And it's been way harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, there's a story that comes to mind where I gave a pitch of this project to Kenya Power, you know, walked them through kind of the different, you know, data that the app would collect, the different energy costs of the app, why people might use this, and kind of a much more technical industrial type pitch. And then I went immediately afterwards to a group of a hackerspace in Kenya, actually, and as a group of young programmers and just tech-minded people and uh, gave a pitch to the app about why why they should use it. And I gave very much the Kenya Power pitch and my audience was entirely wrong. And realizing that because what we're trying to build requires a huge amount of, um, you know, Gridwatch for it to work, you need lots of people to install the app, lots mm-hmm. of people to want to use it, lots mm-hmm. of people to want to contribute and to get some value from the whole experience. So people get value from it by both, you know, closing the loop with the utility, by having this information actually be able to be translated into, you know, actionable steps that are taken by the utility to put, you know, repair trucks in different places in the city to plan for different types of outages now that they've been measured and, you know, there's been patterns that have emerged from the Gridwatch data. But you also need this other group of people, you know, the sort of everyday users. In order to get to big data, you got to get the bigness, right? I mean, it sounds, yeah. it sounds like you need everyday mom and pop or, or whomever, you know, the person who lives in the apartment who potentially cares about whether or not their power is on, right? And that's the audience that you really don't see in the classroom. That's the audience that has been... Um, you know, particularly important for me to try to seek out when I'm in Kenya and when I'm talking to people. And that's been the 
best part of it, you know, is is figuring out the little tweaks to user experience, the the information that people actually care about, and kind of ways to gamify things to reward people for participating. Um, you know, that that has been really different than anything I bumped into in a computer science classroom. Go down that rabbit hole for me, because the, the method through which I found GridWatch, you know, how you came on my radar was through uh, an article I saw in Feedback Labs, the blog on Feedback Labs, which you know, Dennis, Dennis Whittle was recently a guest on our show as well. A guy named Ophir Reich, you know, he was writing, and, and the actual thing he said was that your value proposition in Nairobi, when you first put it out there, was essentially pointless, but then you iterated and found value propositions that w- that, that did work. Like, can you give us specifics about what, what it is that you put on the table? Let me give you a little bit more of the context for how um, people interact with their utility in, in Kenya. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's important for the second half of this answer. So Kenya Power has a very limited monitoring infrastructure at the distribution level of the grid. So they can tell what's going on at kind of the high voltage wires. But when it gets down to neighborhoods, when it gets down to households, you know, in smaller areas, they really don't have any real-time feedback into what's actually happening in terms of whether the power's on, whether the power's off, what the quality of the power is. And none of that information gets transmitted back to Kenya Power. So the first time that Kenya Power will learn about an outage is when um, someone calls them or sends a message to them over Facebook or Twitter. And this message can, you know, contain a little bit of information, not enough information to actually make it actionable. You know, there's there's a varying degree of a value to um, what a user tells KPLC. So initially, we thought we had a value proposition in an app that we can tell people to download that would just disappear into the background of their phone, that would run forever, would require no user interaction and would use only a minimal amount of an energy, a uh, minimal amount of data, you know, about as much as a WhatsApp message, you know, an SMS, you know, every couple of days. And that this would be exciting for people because it would remove, you know, any impetus that they might have to communicate with KPLC. It would remove, you know, the expectation that when their power went out, they would then, you know, rush to the phone and call immediately and Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what we found kind of through talking to people and through looking at some of the kplc data is that people don't call kplc that often people have sort of resigned themselves it seems to you know there's the one person in the neighborhood one person nearby who calls but the normal everyday person doesn't actually it seems does not feel like it's a pressing responsibility of theirs to initiate that communication, which we were abstracting away from them. You know, when we came to them with a value proposition of, we will abstract this communication away from you, all we need is a little bit of your data, a little bit of your energy. The response we pretty quickly got was, absolutely not. There's no value. Sure, and so, this, is, this is valuable data time you're using, especially in a context like Kenya, right? Exactly. So, you know, we went back to the drawing board and we found that, you know, actually building a user experience was going to be a really important part of this. Not just communicating back to KPLC that the power's out, but, you know, building a map, which the app uh, prominently has, you know, on its homepage now that shows you our best guess as to where power is on and off throughout the whole city. Building, you know, a social kind of set of features that allow you to communicate with your friends about the current state of your power. Providing kind of 
even other things that you might want to do with KPLC. So building in the ability to pay your bill and, you know, kind of kind of building a richer user set. It was surprising to me, but this this made the, you know, the underlying sensing, the automatic sensing, which is what I was so excited about and what the, you know, Jay and the rest of the Gridwatch team was so excited about, almost kind of trivializes it and puts it into the background and, yeah. and puts, puts the, yeah, puts the focus more on this other experience. But by installing the app and by living in this other user experience, you're also contributing to this kind of citizen science effort to gather this, you know, high resolution, you know, high temporal, high spatial resolution data about the state of the power grid. Mm. Jay, unpack that for me a little bit. I'd, I'd love for you to sort of give us some deeper context, you know, from the, from the Kenya experience as well. But it just, what I love about this conversation right now is it just, it's funny how, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It just seems so obvious. Like, you know, I have apps on my phone from my mobile phone company, from, you know, the utilities that we have here. And those are for checking my bill. And those are for, you know, finding out, you know, how many, how much data do I have left and those kinds of things. And it would seem obvious that you'd put Gridwatch embedded in there somewhere because then, you know, that's a, that's a valuable piece for both parties. But I really don't care all that much about it. But, but at the same time, it would be super valuable to have in the background. And now that you've socialized something like that, uh, it becomes possible. Jay, tell me a little bit more about that experience. I'm, I'm assuming that this is a key part of what your work was doing. So in systems research and computer science systems research, we actually always say that when you expand the scale by an order of magnitude going from 10 to 100 or 100 to 1,000 or so on, you get an entirely different set of problems. And so here we thought, okay, well, we can, if we can get this device or get this app running on enough phones, we'd be able to get enough insight to be able to try this out. And I think you know, then we ran into the challenge, well, how do you get this on enough phones? And so Noah definitely ran into that buzzsaw, just trying to figure out how you get people to install this. And frankly, he couldn't get people excited about an app that sits in the background and doesn't do anything. People ask, you know, why, why would I install this? What's And maybe you get the, the 20 people at the iHub or wherever else uh, excited about it, but you need to get this to, to large scale. You mentioned big data earlier. And, you know, big data is it's not very common in Kenya. You maybe have uh, telcos that have it, and you have banks that have it, but other organizations that are just not generating this volume of data. You have your social networks and so on, but just it's it's hard to find other sources for this. So, in general, the Gridwatch experience has been we need to figure out ways to get this app out there broadly, and so it did become a lot simpler when we thought, okay, if the sensing isn't what is pushing the sensing out and getting people excited about that isn't isn't there, we have to figure out a way that people are going to pull this application, that they're going to want to go out, seek it out, and say, hey, I really want this. And frankly, outages are a problem in Kenya. You have uh, about 8,000 outages a month in Nairobi, and the average person experiences something like 10 to 12 outages a month. So it's something that they see and they're used to, but um, it's not the, the number one most pressing problem for them. And so how do you get people to install this? Well, you want to embed this in, in something that they're going to be more interested in. And so once we, we came across this idea of just embedding it in the utility application, that's where this can really, we can see it scaling you know, much more massively. You can get a lot more data coming from a lot more people and you can really imagine this. And just the, the architecture of Gridwatch of getting these kind of point measurements of outages from all across the city, um, when you start to put those together is when you get really nice value out of this. And so the idea of having many, many different people acting as essentially sensors is what makes the, the Gridwatch idea really powerful. Take me two years down the line, two, two, three years. I mean, what, where are we at right now in the deployment of Gridwatch? Is, it, is Kenya the only place that's seen it, or is it in multiple places in the world? 
what are the most pressing problems now that you've kind of cracked the socialization nut of, of it? And what do you see, like, how do you see it continuing to evolve over the near term here? I'll start and I think Noah can actually finish this. So I, what's been really interesting about Gridwatch is because it's a cute idea, it actually gets a lot of interest. It gets people to say, hey, that's that's great. We need that where I live. Thus far, Kenya has been our kind of main hub for deployment. We've working very closely with the utility and, and uh, initiating a pilot so that we can see what this looks like at scale when you start to get you know hundreds to thousands of devices all reporting in. I also have, since I've been able to spend a few years in Kenya and I've built a very strong relationship at different levels, whether it's sitting with the call center operators uh, when they get you know, 10, 20 phone calls every you know, five minutes that they have to deal with, or working up the call center manager or working up with the operations manager who sends out repair teams, or all the way up uh, sitting with higher level, um, C-level folks at, at the utility and understanding what their financial challenges are and, and how outages connect to those. You get a sense for the kind of need, different needs from one system throughout an organization. And I think building the the application in such a way and, and the infrastructure around it in a way that benefits each of those parties has been one big challenge. But uh, Noah's actually had some experiences where people from out of the blue, from other countries have contacted him to say, hey, we really need this. Uh, maybe you can speak to that a bit, Noah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the coolest story about kind of a cold call towards the project uh, for me has been a group of folks from Venezuela as they've been going through their large rolling blackouts and, you know, kind of unclear official measurements of the extent of those blackouts. They found our, you know, short paper and wrote to me and we've been able to do a, um, over the past year and a half or so, really closely iterate with them, sending them hardware, um, sending them kind of experimental versions of the app that they're running and learning from, which is awesome. Uh, just the other day, they used Gridwatch um, and kind of some other ground truth and sensors that we sent them to um, detect over voltages and it's just exciting to see other people's excitement about, you know, moving more towards what was an unquantified frustration that, you know, they were feeling to something that there's actually a graph now that they could pull up and demonstrate, you know, the extent to the uh, power problems that they're having. I want to so, compliment you as well, too, on just the, and I mean this in the best sense possible, but the subversiveness of it, right? Where, one of the things that had captured me about Gridwatch is that you, I think you described it much earlier, Noah, is just we've depended or there's still the psyche that there's this giant utility company out there. You know, these are sanctioned monopolies, right, all over the world. And they are responsible for this. This is their domain. And yet this is yet what we're talking about right now is yet another case where you can move into that gray space where you're actually able to know about the system the utility isn't even telling you about and you can know about the system that the government isn't necessarily telling you about and again not to be i'm not painting it darkly but that's just massively empowering to an ordinary citizen i don't think that's a dark framing at all i mean i think that that's a very clear motivation for the project we're not being deliberately subversive but we found you know through talking with utilities it's this double-edged sword for them a little bit where all of a sudden they will know how the grid is working and that, you know, if Gridwatch scales and if everything works, they'll, they'll have this data stream that's like a generational improvement, you know, in the temporal and uh, spatial resolution of how they understand power failures at the distribution level. But at the same time, everyone else will have it. 
you know, so far what we've found through talking with different utilities is that the value add for them, they're not bad people. They want to provide good power. Um, you know, it's been fascinating to see the frustration of some of the engineers at Kenya Power who they have a really hard job. I mean, they're sending trucks out into the dark when the trucks get there, you know, to these these power outages that one or two people called about. Oftentimes there was no outage or conversely, you know, one or two people will call in and the power's out in a huge region of Nairobi. So they want this information because it's critical in providing the reliable power that I think that they really strive to provide. At the same time, you know, quantifying the voice of a population that's, you know, silently struggling with frequent outages and unreliable power is powerful. I mean, we saw in Ghana, there's this citizen science project called the Doomsore Report. Doomsore is on off in the local language. And it's a word that was created in response to frequent power interruptions. And this report was created that basically just asked 40 or 50 people to write down every time their power went on or off. And they graphed it. They found that the power was more reliable around you know, certain wealthier parts of the cities and the kind of social political response to to this data being quantified was, you know, it went viral. It, it was desired. Mm. Let me ask a really practical question. It's a research project, Gridwatch, but it has massive commercial potential, not only on the, the both on the demand and the supply side, right? What's the funding process right now? What what keeps you guys going? Is it, you know, do you have grants that are funding this research and then you're just able to sort of bring it out into the world as ways of saying, look, we want to test this and we want to get it right? Or has this are, you know, is there already business models being created and, you know, you're you're going down that path as well? Where this work goes is largely uh, dependent on who pulls at us? And right now we've been we've been getting a lot of interest. Of course, we're, we've got our existing work in Kenya. We are, uh, Noah mentioned Ghana. We've got some work spinning up there. And the idea is that, you know, largely we have an idea that is very sticky, that people are very excited about. We're in the process of proving that that idea can scale. And that's often what you hear from a startup. Uh, however, the challenge is that this needs to be an idea that can scale in the kinds of environments that we're looking at, which are sub-Saharan African environments in many cases. And those environments don't necessarily have the capital to, to run these things. You, you're expecting your main customer to be a national utility is probably not a winning business model. And so because of that, we, we're continuing on this idea of a research project. We, we are actually working towards doing an impact evaluation to understand if you're able to get better and, and uh, more monitoring around electricity outages and able to infuse that information into the utility processes for how they respond to electricity outages and, and plan their systems and, and everything else that comes with uh, utilities operations, can that improve, can that have impacts on everyday you know, residences, on, on businesses, and, and how long their power is available? So that's a, a very attractive idea because there's, there's so much excitement and, and interest in working on energy access. But what's exciting about our work here is that we're focusing on people that have got access but they don't have access that's that's necessarily as useful, and they're not able to you know create better lives and, and wealth they would if they had uh, reliable and copious power. Take me to the evolution. You know how Gridwatch 
contributes to the change of the grid over time in the future. In the pre-show, you and I, we, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, you're excited about what does electricity look like in the future. And I want to make sure that we get there because to someone like myself, you know, you got to lay a cable and, and that's how it gets to the house. But then, you know, my mind quickly goes to the Tesla solar roof or, or, or you know, the Tesla, the battery pack, you know, the home pack, where is that really a potential for grids to start disappearing? But maybe you're even going to tell us about some other way. So what have you seen now and, and what are you all looking at in the future about electrification that, that we need to know about? Absolutely. So I'm very keen to, to discuss this because I think it's something that isn't, isn't seen out there. So let me give you the one minute story of, of why I see that the, grid, the smart grids of sub-Saharan Africa look nothing like the smart grids we're seeing across the world. So smart meters are the core of the smart grid. They're the, they're the computing center. They, they do all the measurement and they allow you to kind of control electricity consumption and, and matching of the supply and demand, which is the kind of fundamental process of, of electricity grid. And just to be clear, and, because we haven't talked about the smart meter, I know Noah mentioned it way in the early, earlier part of the show, but this is the thing that sits on your house or sits in the bottom of the apartment building and it's user specific, right? Absolutely. We've got about 50% of meters in the U.S. are now smart meters in sub-Saharan Africa. That's going to be far less than 1%. So this is a $300 piece of equipment that utilities have made the case that by installing these, they no longer have to, they're, they're two-way communicating. You know, they no longer have to send meter readers out to, to go check the meter every month. They no longer have to, they can find out remotely about outages and they no longer have to worry about connections and disconnections remotely. They can do all of this by you know, just a couple of clicks on a, on a computer and that sends some communication and handles all of this. So smart meters are expensive. They're $300 a device. And then there's all the analytics and all of the um, intelligence that goes into managing this new stream of large amounts of data. So while that makes sense in, in you know, half the utilities in the U.S., which is fewer than you'd think it would, but in a lot, of the emerging, a lot of emerging economies, labor is much cheaper. So having meter readers doesn't cost you quite as much. Outages are more frequent, so that becomes even more important. And connections and disconnections are more frequent as there's a little bit more you know, movement of population. But because that labor is cheaper, smart meters aren't quite as important of a case in these places plus budgets are, are more constrained. So because the, this kind of mix of uh, changes from how the, the case for smart meters is made in the U.S. and Europe versus how it's made in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, we're actually not seeing smart meters deployed out there. Uh, what we're seeing is actually meters are switching in many cases to be prepaid meters. So just like you can get a prepaid phone and top it up, uh, a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa have prepaid electricity meters and they're topping up their meter as they, as they need more electricity. Um, so right now it's roughly a quarter of meters across sub-Saharan Africa. In the next 10 years, it's supposed to be over half of meters. While most of the world is doing this zig of installing smart meters, sub-Saharan Africa is doing this zag of installing prepaid meters that don't actually communicate. Does that just make sense uh, culturally or does that make sense economically? I mean, what, like, why does that zag happen? Absolutely. Both of those things. So culturally, people are used to buying just as much as they need. Not anymore, not necessarily having this debt that comes at the end of the month to say, hey, you need to pay this bill. Economically, that also fits cash flows. When people get money, they, they buy electricity. If they don't have money, they don't buy electricity. And so just as the prepaid phone is, is the kind of canonical model, 99% of uh, Kenyan consumers that have a, a mobile phone, it's prepaid. Just like that has taken hold in the, in the phone market, it's taken hold in the meter market as well. So what are the implications of this? Well, if you just have these prepaid meters everywhere, you're not going to get smart meters everywhere. How do you handle some of these challenges? Well, I mentioned outages being a, a nice benefit of having smart meters everywhere. If we can solve outages by 
leveraging the Internet of Things, the, the mobile phones that are everywhere, well, then that even reduces the case that you'll have smart meters at any, everywhere, even five, ten years down the road. And so now we're, we're thinking about, okay, now the phone is actually the heart of sensing and the heart of, of, uh, you know, of the home and of the business. If you can leverage phones to actually be that Internet of Things device, that smart meter, but in a different way, you actually get a very different looking grid and it doesn't look like anywhere else in the world. How are utilities thinking about this as well? I'm, I'm hearkening back now. The, about two years ago at this stage, and it's weird that I can say that, we had a gentleman on who was the founder of Takamoto Biogas. And I don't know if you met him in, in Kenya. The innovation that they were putting out there was essentially you know, using biogas as the, gen, you know, as the power generation point, and they did that at the, at the home. They would go and they would build a biogas receptacle, and then that would you know, do, do the power generation. Or, but basically when they... They used this this system that you're talking about. It was a prepaid system, so you know people would have a certain amount, and then the, a mobile phone system would would shut it off if they hadn't paid and turn it back on, and these kinds of things. Take me to the, the utility side because utilities, again, because usually they're they're monopolies in themselves or sanctioned monopolies. They rely upon this kind of constant flow of this cash flow, right? This cash flow uh, proposition of everybody's plugged in all the time. How does prepaid mess with that business model? Uh, absolutely. I actually, you mentioned uh, Kyle Shooter from Takamoto. Um, yeah. Nairobi expat circles are fairly small, so you, you get to know everything. <laughs> I'm glad you put Kyle's name on it because I was going to have to look it up and then I was going to have to insert it into the into the conversation. Yes, Kyle. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, prepaid actually, I mean, utilities are, are excited to move to prepaid because what happens in many cases with postpaid is that people just don't pay their bills. And so you just get these large arrears on balance sheets of utilities. So most utilities in sub-Saharan Africa are carrying enormous amounts of arrears and are wanting to switch over to prepaid because that at least means that the credit is actually held with the consumer and the credit isn't held by the utility. Um, So because of this, they're actually deploying prepaid massively. So it, it helps them in a lot of ways. However, on the other side of the coin, the average prepaid user in Kenya uses about a quarter of the electricity of the as the average postpaid user. Mm-hmm. So by being more cognizant of their patterns of, of consumption, uh, people tend to, to hold back. Now, that certainly could change based on wealthier and poorer areas. But uh, the signal is still there that it, it's a very kind of upfront, you're using your 10 kilowatt hours of energy, you're using your 100 shillings right now, and you see that go away, and then you deposit the next amount in the next you know, day or two. And so that constant interaction with electricity means you have a very different relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Does your research, and, and the, as you continue to breathe life into this project and evolve it, I know this is going to be an issue in, this, in a place like the States or, or in, um, in Europe. What about privacy? Are you guys getting pushback at all from people about you know, sort of this app sits in the background or, or you know, you're providing this data about my life that um, can be used against me or maybe be used nefariously? I think that some of our most interesting research questions around privacy, it's obvious that, you know, if this was done wrong, this would be quite invasive. Um, sure, I mean, this is and, literally Big Brother, right? <laughs> yeah. We've been, you know, from kind of day zero of the project, trying to wrestle with those problems. Because there's, you know, this fundamental trade-off between, you know, the more information that we're able to gather, the better our prediction is going to be, but the more invasive it's going to be to the participant. And even abstracting away our, you know, I very much do not, I'm quite privacy conscious myself, even abstracting away my ethical issues with privacy, you still get back to this usability issue. You know, like if 
we're going to need to be able to look people in the eyes and tell them, you know, exactly what we're collecting and why we're collecting it. So one of the things that we've done is basically really focused on making sure that every sensor that is used in the GridWatch process is able to be turned on or off by the user of the app. So, for example, if you're uncomfortable with us using the microphone to listen to AC mains nearby, you can configure the app you know, through the settings page to no longer look at the microphone. And while this hurts our data stream because we lose this kind of one predictor, it's still, you know, there's still value through the other predictors. We could write our algorithms to kind of assign, you know, somewhat modified and toned down amounts of information, different levels of confidence into how much we trust that it's a true positive outage uh, that we've detected. I'm very interested to learn how people configure the app once they, you know, once we put it out and once it's at scale. Because I think by learning what people are willing to accept, you know, through how they configure, through which sensors they turn on and off, through through kind of the mode that they put the app in, we'll be able to move from just kind of assumptions that this might be invasive to actual some empirical evidence about, you know, what the privacy trade-offs are that people are willing to accept. You look at information that people freely share on Twitter and Facebook about their power, you know, on public streams and stuff like that they'll include their you know often include their meter number they'll include their exact location the time that it went down so they'll include in a much more public way than we would ever disseminate you know the information the exact same information that we're gathering Mm -hmm. um and people are already kind of seeming to be okay to um you know to to make that public but i with it too it's also you know it's providing very good tutorials it's providing very good markings on every part of the app to make sure that people could really audit it and understanding it all of our code is open source so if people are privacy concerned they could go and they could you know audit the actual code itself to to understand exactly how it's gathering and collecting information but yeah privacy privacy is a huge concern mm. It seems to me to be a common case that people become privacy hounds when it's it's a feature of the function or a feature of the service or a feature of the product that they're engaging with. And yet when it comes to self-disclosure, privacy becomes a, a – and I'm sure that there's a ton of research out there. But what, what Noah just said, right, if we put it in the app, people might get concerned about it and, you know, they're wondering, oh, gosh, are we collecting information? But at the same time, they're willing to tweak their meter number and their exact location and when the power went out, right, which is even more heavily personalized than anything you're collecting. So self-disclosure is such a completely different mental modality for so many people rather than that background nature of just sort of automation. Gosh, that's a fascinating piece of research. No, absolutely. And I, I think uh, when you mentioned Big Brother earlier, I think the amount that Big Brother's already out there and Big Brother resides in San Francisco and uh, Mountain View and Menlo Park and, and already knows so much of these things about us, already has you know everything on our phones and, and everything's monitored already. So you know, Big Brother is, it's not what we want to be because it's it implies this kind of negative thing. But we also need to figure out the way to leverage all of this incredible data out there to provide useful services, to provide things that can improve infrastructure systems, that can you know better help incomes and better help. There, there's all kinds of ways that we can start to leverage some of this data that's out there. But you, yes, you do absolutely have to be responsible and you know have it be a journey with the user so that they understand how they're benefiting from this and what the trade-off is for them. So last two questions. Both of you are in the academic path. 
at what point does this does this turn into a, a commercial venture for you or you know is that you know no you said you know everything's open source it's out there are you expecting an entrepreneur some other hacker to sort of say hey that's great code i'm going to go take it and i'm going to bring a commercial venture or is that is that part of your model for for the future that you want to get it to a place where you guys can can make the leap or what's your thought on that so i think my dream is to build gridwatch into like a stable and widely used system in in one context of scale and then try to give it away you know there's nothing really inherently geographically specific about gridwatch you know there's nothing about how the app works in kenya that couldn't work in the US. And, you know, you're completely correct that this is too much for, you know, one graduate student and a couple faculty members to to really take upon themselves to, you know, and take seriously as something that, you know, a million people in Kenya would be using and this complex data stream would be, you know, filtering into the utility company. You know, like there's a lot of steps that are feasible, but do require, you know, maybe something more focused and less ephemeral than the academic context. Mm -hmm. That being said, that's not really been the focus of what's been exciting about the project for for me. My hope is that if we could prove that this works at scale, you know, someone else will be able to kind of take what we've developed and keep scaling it in different contexts. We just might have inferred to them as Big Brother, but, you know, if Google is listening... This would be a great service um, <laughs> just to be built into Android. Something like that would be um, would be really you know wonderful for me to see. But there's no focus or intention to monetize this for me and for I believe for all of my collaborators. So the last two questions I have are ones that I ask every guest. I'd love to do it in turn, just simply because you both are you know unique individuals, and I'd love to hear where you're coming from. But the first one is is who do you pay attention to in order to sort of stay up on the on the latest news and and learn more about power and and you know just sort of what are your information streams so are there twitter feeds are there magazines are there blogs are there uh, newspapers where do you get your information to stay up to date and just just stay fresh let's start with jay great so you know there's there's some good blogs out there there's this energy at Haas blog that's run by um the folks at the hospice school they've been working in uh developing context for a long time and really understand a lot of these challenges they're economists so they have a somewhat different worldview than than i do as a technologist there's really nice ac- academic journals and that's the thing about academic journals in this space is that you have to be able to find the the nugget that makes it really interesting it can be buried somewhere deep in there uh, but as you one of the parts of the academic experience is to really learn how to find that nugget quickly. So um, Energy for Sustainable Development is a great journal that, that looks at topics like here, topics like this. And last, um, the, you know, the World Bank has a lot of different efforts that I leverage quite a bit. And just seeing what the ESMAP program has done, and they have this really cool energy data portal that pulling together data sources and, and open sourcing them for many people to build different services on. And they also have this really cool program called the Ease of Doing Business program that's collected a lot of different data around how easy it is to start and operate a business. But some of that data is around electricity. And that's um, something that uh, it's an annual report. So it's really fascinating for me to see how electricity services are changing all across the world. Noah? Yeah, so I'm pretty in the academic context right now. <laughs> You're I in the thick of always it. <laughs> look, <laughs> I look forward to uh, papers coming from Catherine Wolfram, who's at Haas and collaborates with Gridwatch, but she does a lot of She's an economist, so she's uh, looking at the other side of the problem than me, you know, as an engineer, which is always fascinating. 
I just bought the book The Grid by Gretchen Bakke, which I gave to my mother for her birthday. Um, and I think she was sort of excited about it. But, That's um, awesome. <laughs> I, I read it um, and enjoyed it and would you know recommend it as kind of, if you're coming to this conversation, not really knowing much about the power grid. It turns out the power grid is fascinating and complicated and incredible and flawed in a lot of pretty interesting ways. And I think the grid did a good job kind of presenting some of those arguments. And last question I have, Noah, why don't you start? Is there, you know, when you're not thinking about grid watch, when you're not thinking about power grids, is there another innovation out there that, um, you know, is designed to help people or designed to improve the world in some way, improve human flourishing, as I like to say, that you think you want to get a little more press to or, or needs a shout out that, that you'd like to mention? I don't know if it needs more press because it was recently bought by Facebook, but the some of the mobile base station work um, that's come out of the tier group at Berkeley, which is Eric Brewer's lab, has really captured my imagination. And this is the idea of, of village mobile base stations that can set up community-managed cellular networks for populations that otherwise wouldn't receive uh, cellular connectivity. I love the idea of people buying a box and you know, hanging it up and managing it themselves and, you know, all of a sudden being able to have cellular connectivity. I think that's super cool. Jay? So this idea of drones and it's uh, drones get plenty of press. There's actually a really cool startup. uh, One of the first companies that's been operating drones that is moving blood around in Rwanda. Because it's not a very large country, but it's hilly and difficult to get around. And so we had Ryan Oxenhorn of Zipline on the show. Fantastic. So being able to find these high-value applications where it makes sense to, to use drones to move things around. The challenge is, though, as, as you kind of project that forward, do we move all of the high-value applications into drones? And then what happens to our road network? Can we even fund them anymore? So there's a little bit of a double-edged sword with this, but the kind of scope of applications that can come out of having autonomous vehicles in the air is just incredible. Jay and Noah, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking your time out of your evening to, to talk to us about Gridwatch, and uh, I wish you all the best for the future, and I hope this is not the last time that we, we have this conversation. I want to say, before we leave, you can go to www.grid.watch, and that will have a link to the app um, if you want to help us beta test it and everything. It's also on the Play Store if you search for Gridwatch. Super cool. Thank you so much. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely make sure that that's in the crib notes and uh, on the blog when we, when we publish the podcast. Great. Thanks, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. Hey, guys, if you have found this conversation valuable, we'd really like to get your feedback. So can you take a few seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is that you happen to be listening to this podcast on? And if you did like it, spread it out to the world, put it on Facebook or share it on Twitter for us. And you can always have the option of, you know, sending us an email or giving us a comment on the blog. Thanks. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.